and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us today as we chat with Paul Rabel. Paul is the world's most recognized lacrosse player. He plays for the New York Lizards and Team USA, and he's been very successful in lacrosse. He's won championships at all levels of competition. He's won league MVPs. He's won a world MVP and a major league lacrosse championship MVP. So he's played at the highest levels of lacrosse and has had success at each of those levels. Paul also is what we would call a crossover athlete. So he has figured out a way to leverage his lacrosse talent and use that talent to get introductions and to get involved in other platforms. He's very involved on social media. His YouTube channel is wildly successful. He's got a terrific podcast, which we will talk about during this episode. And he also is very active on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and he's really leveraged technology to help grow his brand and help grow the things that he's most interested in. He also has a foundation, the Paul Rabel Foundation, which has a mission to assist children with learning differences. And Paul will get into some of the learning challenges that he had throughout his life. So what they do is they fund scholarships and they build lacrosse programs at different schools. Paul is an interesting guy. He's definitely not one-dimensional, and we will talk about some of his experiences working in sports psychology and his interest in psychology, his desire to learn more, and his curiosity when it comes to technology, and his involvement in a variety of things. He's certainly not somebody who just stays in his lane as a lacrosse player. He's leveraged his fame and his brand to do some really cool things and some really interesting things. So he's a great follow on social media. He also has an amazing podcast, which we will get to as well. And so this is a rich conversation. We'll talk about his upbringing. We'll talk about psychology. We'll talk about physiology and skills and what goes into making a great lacrosse player. And we'll also talk about his mindset and how he's evolved and developed over the years. So I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. And when you do, if you could share it on social media, if you could share it with some friends and family, and of course, if you could subscribe to our podcast and also Paul's podcast, I know we both would be very, very grateful. So without further ado, I present to you, Paul Rabel. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, 
Well, I thought we'd start is you're pretty open about your work with sports psychology. Uh, and I think John is his name. Uh, talk about where that came about, how that came about, you know, why you went in that direction and what that experience was like for you. Yep. Yep. Well, thanks for having me. And we were talking about your, your humble abode here in, in the office. It's great to be here in Bethesda. Um, you know, we, we obviously align there on the sports psychology side. It's become very important to me. I think for the, for the most important reason is, is as you grow older in sports and if you're lucky to play professionally as I have, then it becomes about your career that hopefully you can elongate. I think from a market perspective, it's a, it's a, it's a fast, it's a sprint to get to a stage in your life where you can potentially be offered a scholarship to play college ball. Uh, and then it's a, a shorter, more rigorous sprint from college to hopefully be drafted into pro. And this is sport agnostic. Very few people then say, okay, now that you've made it to professional sports, what's next? And we romanticize and, and certainly idolize for the right reasons, the Kobe Bryant's, the Michael Jordan's, LeBron James right now, and the Tom Brady's, you know, more certainly Tim Duncan's and anyone else who have, who have played 15, 20 year careers at a high level. But there's a reason why we talk about them so much and them only because it is very few people are able to have that type of longevity in their career. Uh, and primarily because sports at the professional level is a young woman or young man's game. Um, very much so at the early stages, the physiological makeup uh, and the skill outweighs the psychology. The psychology really kicks in for uh, someone who frankly has to get some adult years underneath them because uh, it's not something that I've learned through my teachings and work with younger kids that you can force feed, nor is any type of skill. I tell parents this for a young kid and, and you know, again, their son or daughter wants to play in college or maybe they want their kid to play in college, but they're not putting the meaningful work in practicing on their own away from practice, as we always say, because that has to be an intrinsic motivation. And that's always tell them, like, if they're not doing it on their own, then they're probably not going to do it. And the same thing comes with our mental horsepower. And I believe that, you know, there are very few, perhaps, young kids that probably have a lot to do with the home they were brought into, whether it was an evolved uh, parental upbringing, et cetera, that gives them some type of exposure to the value in therapy or sports psychology to where they actually want to invest. There is so much in way of peer pressure and college and all that like social scene where you're trying to identify who you are personally that, frankly, it takes to your mid-20s, more so late 20s and then 30s to re really get a grasp over the true meaning of life and what experience means and um, and, and in this case, your question, the value in sports psychology. So I think many of the, the guys that I mentioned previously, and, and you could look at an Abby Wambach and a Mia Hamm um, as examples on uh, for women that, that have invested in the psychology component of the game, is that then is the third value or the third characteristic that a talented athlete brings to the table. You have your skill. For In my case, it's your stick work and your shooting and the physiological makeup, and then the psychological. And then as you get older, if if you did well enough in the first two, when you can start conceding a little bit of the physiological, 
that your experience through volume of games improves. That that happens to really everyone. But then the way that your vantage point, the way that you see the game, the way that you work with teammates, the way that you lead, that ability to persevere or handle a lot of the momentum. We hear momentum a lot in sports, but it's really kind of uh, that that is that is the psychology of of what's transcending on the court or on the field or between a particular matchup or a player that isn't playing well. That's all psychology stuff. So it's been fascinating for me to uh, kind of fall into it. And, and the moment specifically was losing a world championship in 2014 to Canada. Um, I felt like the the world was ending. Uh, previous to that, I, I would I would admit, and those that were close to me would know that any loss would take me weeks to overcome, and I would be happy at least during a season because I'd know I'd only have to fight sleep deprivation and and the and the likes uh, for only six days because I get a chance for re- for redemption the following. We're gonna find out more about your sports psychology journey, but I'm just curious, when did that start from you? The competitive nature that losing would hurt you that way can you remember going back to childhood well yeah i mean it's it's there's a lot we could kind of look into but i would say i've 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 partly had that gene as part of my makeup my dad's very competitive um and uh he's he's demanding but uh, incredible soft skills so very empathetic uh sympathetic what does he do for a passionate So he's he's a blue collar uh, sales worker, and and he had spent about thirty three years, maybe a little bit more, maybe thirty five years in printing and sales with a, actually a local company here in D.C. Uh, very loyal, and has been in that with that company for so long. And we just got him over. Now he's working full time with me on our event business. So he's a director of of sales, director of ops for for Rabel Events. So it's been fun to really work with him. When you use the word loyal, I'm just curious. What does that word do for you? How do you think about loyalty? Well, in that context, it was his alignment to an organization that gave him an opportunity when he was young to work that allowed him to flourish when the business was hot prior to like digital and and social and marketing really shifting more in that direction than away from traditional linear media. Uh, but but it, I would say like many people in, in the printing business um, – that had the under the context of loyalty that he was to his work and to his managers and such, like probably wasn't a, hasn't been a great fit for him for the past five to ten years. Uh, but he grinds grinded it out because of that relationship and that kind of uh, generational loyalty to those that gave him opportunity and such. Uh, and it was really difficult. And I spent a lot of time with him, as did my older brother Mike, who's a business partner and and helped. Uh, you know, my dad make this decision or come to this decision as well uh, was, was just stepping away and letting go despite it, it not really being a good fit for him anymore. Um, but it, under the general context of loyalty, uh, I, I would say for, for me is is, um, hmm, is is probably understanding the level of importance of the person or the product or service that you're committed to honoring that, but doing so for probably mutual purposes, right? Understanding that it's beneficial for you and that could be uh, monetarily, it could be spiritually, 
Um, and, and but but then the part two of that is understanding that hopefully it's a two way street and also beneficial to that other person if it's a relationship and and that uh, you're you're probably it's not always going to be great but you're probably going to have to make sacrifices and understand that um, it'll be good more than it won't and uh, as long as the ideologies of both parties and again it could be your business or your or your business partners or even just a uh, a product or service, as I mentioned, as long as the ideologies align. And by that, I mean, if you're someone who is, uh, who is evolving or continually improving, like both have to be moving in that direction, uh, kind of seeing eye to eye, that, that, that feels like loyalty to me. Um, that said, I, I, I think there's this, uh, feeling that, um, loyalty shouldn't be broken where I think, most things in life are transient in a way and our ability to know that most things don't last uh, and are kind of part of our uh, spiritual and personal journey um, irrespectively of outcome is, uh, is is part of at least the way I approach things and 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 I think actually aids in in the right decision making long term. You mentioned your brother. Is your brother competitive as well? Is everybody yep. in the family have this sort of, you said, gene to, hey, we want to compete? And if you could paint the picture of what your childhood was like with your brother, with your dad, yeah. uh, any other big players uh, that come to mind as well as from a childhood standpoint? Yeah. So I realized yeah, I, I, the long form of podcasts are always fascinating because it's a standard tom- conversation for me to deviate. Um, but I, that's I was, what I love about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's jump around. And, right. and I love that. Cause look, you mentioned momentum. You mentioned, um, you know, intrinsic motivation. You, you, yeah. you know, that you hit on psychological terms that get my hair standing up and get me excited and get yeah. me into my wheelhouse. But all of that is for not, if we don't also think about who you are and how you came to be. So yeah, you know, that's why I love doing it. Yeah. And it's interesting because some psychologists or, or personal therapists or, or sports psychologists, however, however it is, or, or, um, you know, life coaches, they, uh, so they, they, they prescribe a certain all and then, and some, some don't have any methodology and, and what you're, I think you're referencing is, is called a genogram, but really understanding, um, not only your upbringing and your perspective at an early age, but um, understanding that of of your family members and then your parents and why they think a certain way and their parents' parents and going all the way through that lineage, writing it down and and hopefully developing a, a deeper level of understanding of why things exist and it pulls out the emotional aspect, the emotional side of you know certain decisions that may have not may not have gone your way or certain things when you're younger that uh, you regret, etc. So. Uh, getting a better and wider perspective. So my brother and I have always been very competitive. He, he's in, he's he's a he's a fiercer competitor than I. Um, and uh, you say fierce? What do you mean by that? Well, we we at an early age we decided to stop com- being on opposite sides of the ball and whatever we were doing because it was end up in a fight. And more times than not, he would start the fight. So when I would say <laughs> fierce, uh, that was that was probably that's probably what I mean by that. He, he would say the same thing about me, but we 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 consistently jab at each other. Um, I'm in, one of three reflection. boys, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, it's hockey sticks, basketballs thrown. Uh, yeah. Usually, my parents knew when we came back in the house after a few minutes that there was going to be some discipline that needed to be handed out. Usually toward me, but that's a story for another day. Yeah. Uh, so, how, what's the age difference? between you and your brother about a about 22 months okay, 22 so months yeah so so we um 
we we had the foresight probably in our early teens to realize, and then those around us too knew our competitive level just being that different. I didn't know, you know, I, I can look at it back at it now, given our success in athletics, respectively, that that a lot of it was wow, we were that just kind of one percent, some cases ten, twenty percent. Uh, greater in in way of our just like our, our competitive uh, spirit and the way that we would you know wouldn't be able to shake off a loss even in a neighborhood game of like wiffle ball and uh, that actually was an aura that we would bring to the street and like our friends who were great athletes too would understand and what I mean by that is we would go and we we pick teams at, on the basketball court and we just kind of be like Mike and I have to be on the same team. And it wasn't because we're brothers and we need to play on the same team. It was like, well, if they play on opposite teams, one of them's going to lose and there's going to be a fight. So our friends would be like, yeah, that makes sense. We, we've seen it. And like, okay. So everyone would acquiesce to like the, the, the fiercest competitors. So I look back and I'm like, okay, that was definitely something that makes sense when I figure out how the hell I did get to the place that I, that I am in now. What sports were you guys playing as a kid? We played everything. So we swam. He played baseball. I played a lot of soccer. We played basketball. We played street hockey. You know, my dad uh, has has told us more in our adulthood that if there was a sport that we wanted to play and he could afford it, then he would. Then we would do it. And the same thing went for camps and the likes. And but we were pretty realistic uh, with the latter, especially the, the marketplace was was different when you and I were growing up, and there wasn't, you know. Three, four dozen camps available every week in the area. Even strike the area, right? We're seeing kids now just travel to different geographies across the country seemingly every weekend or every other weekend for the same sport. So very rarely did that. The only camp I went to that was out of Maryland was Dean Smith's North Carolina basketball camp. It's because we grew up in a Carolina basketball household. My dad went there. All of his siblings did and most of our extended family. So that was more of a treat and experience that my dad always enjoyed us, uh, enjoyed giving us the opportunity to do. But for the most part, it was all local street ball. We'd get out and I'd play a bunch in the backyard and, and, uh, I noticed and from there. you did, I don't, I, maybe I missed it, but you didn't say lacrosse. Yeah. Well, lacrosse was, uh, you, you didn't, uh, miss it. I didn't say it. Um, lacrosse, uh, was my last sport I picked up. I think I've, I've never, uh, presented it that way, but definitely, it definitely was, I started playing when I was 12, and um, it was at the convergence of uh, AAU basketball wanting me to commit full-time and club soccer the same, and me wanting to play both basketball and soccer, so saying no to both and then been, being given an extra season to play something, and my brother was playing baseball during the spring, and uh, and my neighbor, Bruce Nickenicki, who ended up playing lacrosse at Naval Academy, is now a SEAL. Um, gave me his backup stick and was like, why don't you come out for the team? Uh, I didn't know what lacrosse was. My parents didn't know. Um, so we figured it out on the fly. Despite being from Maryland, a lot of people think that Maryland and New York are two of the hotbeds um, that state-wise they are, but it's really Baltimore and Long Island. So growing up in Montgomery County, um, lacrosse was sanctioned at the high school level, but it was still very much in its nascent stages. And there, and there was a uh, very little influence or knowledge alone around the sport. So figured it out on the fly, no YouTube at the time. So I was up, you know, kind of left up to my own imagination, which is a big thing in sports, right? We take for granted now that kids get to acquire skill by, by visually watching. Um, and, and, and you even look at soccer when I was growing up, I may have gone long in soccer 
had I been able to watch it um, like kids can now. You know, you, you, the only soccer that was on television when I was growing up was the World Cup. There's a couple thoughts that are running through my head. One, I'm a Montgomery County kid too. Did you play IG70? I did. So I played IT70 yeah. basketball. Yeah. But that was my peak, unlike you. Um, <laughs> like probably 11, 12 years old. And then n- no one told me that five foot six, not athletic kids are, uh, are not destined for greatness in basketball. If they told me that, I probably would have told them to go F themselves. Yeah. And I probably would have still gone forward. Um, but there are a couple other things when you were talking about the ability to just play. A lot of golfers, a lot of the best golfers in the world are not country club kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they grow up just figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And golf is probably the ultimate specialization sport. Um, you know, you go, you've got a golf instructor and that's your coach. Yeah. Um, and then you don't have a coach. I mean, there's high school managers slash coaches, but they're pretty much just setting the schedule. So I'm fascinated by that just from a psychological standpoint is that a lot of the best golfers in the world do not come from um, country clubs. Huh. Um, and then the other thing that I'm fascinated or, or want to learn more about when it comes to you is, is swimming. Yep. So, um, swimming is a monotonous sport. It is a tough sport. It's hard on the body. Um, and yet I talked to a lot of elite performers who started in swimming. What did swimming give you foundationally, either physically, mentally, uh, or, or technique wise? Yeah. Well, first is discipline, right? The, the, the reason why I stopped swimming, frankly, is that it's a 5 a.m. wake up call sport. And then after, school usually at three or four for round two. So, uh, and and that was just, you know, like most sports, especially today, once you reach a level of, hey, you're a talented swimmer or basketball player or soccer player or lacrosse player, and you're in your early teens, let's start making a a, a pretty hefty investment and commitment to see if you can make it to the next level. Um, So that, you know, I swam until I was probably about 17, but I I was mainly doing summer swim. So I wasn't doing winter swim. And then right around probably 14 or 15, those who were doing winter started beating me. And uh, and then I was playing it for fun. But uh, swimming is big in Maryland. Obviously, you know, Mike Phelps is is one and then uh, plenty of others. Katie Ledecky. Yep. Um, I'm I'm thinking, uh, I'm trying to think of... uh, one of the big ones who who also swam in in Montgomery County that has still has all the pool records, but I'm I'm drawn to. Could blank. you see the name at, at your facility or something? Yeah, well, I uh, you know, we growing up in Montgomery County where there's MCSL All Star relays and all and, and All Star meets and like seeing the talent go Division One and and then seeing the Olympians that had records at pool. It really is a swimming state, so that was a lot of fun, but. I think the individual aspect of it, outside of the discipline, be the, being the only individual sport that I that I was able to compete at at a high level. I ran cross country for a year, but it was like I'm doing this to try and build my endurance and learn how to run a little bit better uh, for the sports that I really like. Swimming is something about lining up. Um, you know, there's there's eight lanes, and you're looking to your right and left, and you're sizing up the competitor and. And you're getting down, and once you hit the water, it's a sprint, and uh, and it's just kind of fastest wins. Uh, it's why I think we love watching the Olympics, in particular track and field, and the hundred and two hundred and four hundred races. Yeah, three sports come to mind that when people start them early. I think it helps them be able to deal with the spotlight. Um, for me, at least, it's swimming, uh, tennis, hmm. and uh, and wrestling, um, and. Uh, interestingly, those three sports also have huge burnout. Uh, when mm-hmm. I work with college athletes at those sports, a lot of them, 
are done <laughs> by the time they get yeah. to college. But you think about the footwork needed in a sport like tennis or the technique and how that trends, like Dirk Nowitzki played tennis growing up. That mm. was his sport and his footwork for a seven-footer was unheard of when mm. he got to the NBA. Um, or you think about wrestling. And if you watch the Super Bowl, there's usually offensive linemen. I know Wisniewski, um, you know, an offensive lineman in the Super Bowl, he he credits wrestling for getting leverage and, and that sort of stuff. And then swimming, you're sort of hitting on. It teaches you discipline. It teaches you a lot of different things. But to your point, they all teach you how to deal with the spotlight. And mm. every team sport is a team sport. Like, I, I understand the team component, but there's also an element of individuality in every sport. You mentioned soccer earlier. I've worked with pro soccer teams, and, you know, they talk about having personality in soccer and personality yeah. being a good thing. Um, so if you are just a team sport guy and you don't have that individual component, you might miss an element of learning how to deal with the pressure. Uh, you can't hide in a sport like swimming. You can't no. hide in wrestling. You can't hide in tennis. Um, and I think that that does help the long-term psychology. So it's interesting as you sort of talk about your journey. When you were 17 and these kids were better than you um, that had been doing it year-round, was there any regret at that moment? Or were you, were you very clear on, hey, I, I'm glad with the decisions I've, I've made? Because I'm thinking about you as a competitor. Yeah. Like, If you could put yourself back at 17, was there any part of you that's like, oh, well, if I did it year-round, I would be kicking all your asses? Yeah, I, I think that's what was, would go through my head, whether that was true or not. Um, I, I'm not sure, but but because I, I think that the if I or what ifs um, certainly uh, discount the the commitment and the dedication. You also said monotony in in swimming. I think that is is really important to emphasize because. It, you know, there, there are, there, there's like practice in and of itself, no matter the sport can be monotonous. So when you're training regularly in swimming and, and probably similar in the other two sports that you mentioned, but swimming in particular, because it is so regulated on the stroke, otherwise you can, you can be flagged and, and disqualified. So everything has to be done properly for long distances for an amount of time. So it's it's a really uh, focus driven sport um, where you where you you have to have equal physical um, development and improvement as kind of mental floss and patience and being able to like be in the water for you know eighty to a hundred laps of practice and and uh, and you know, you're you're kind of stuck there with your own mind and thinking. I remember that was like the hardest part about practice for me is just like you're swimming and your mind's just racing as it always does and you're moving your arms and. You're feeling tired here and there. Anyway, um, swimming uh, was very valuable to me. It's 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 uh, not surprising that you bring that up. Uh, but to give to give you an answer is I I think from a competitive standpoint, I probably looked at my summer races when I was older and getting beat as just continual opportunities to pull off an upset. Hmm. And in some cases, I did. I was I was always an all star breaststroker and would would win first or second, so that uh, that was one that I kind of leaned on probably more than the others. Uh, and then the other thing that I really loved about swimming were, were the relays, and uh, and I, I I would relay with three other of my mates who did swim winter, and they were really talented. Um, so to be a part of like all-star relays there and that team and, and racing against four other competitors on like the IM 
and and uh, me being able to to uh, carry my weight on on the breaststroke. So it was a little bit of a different experience, I would say. That same time, um, you know, my my head was in lacrosse at yeah, that so moment. Tell me so. about lacrosse. So you get introduced to the sport, uh, and and I grew up in this area too, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head. There are kids around here. Well, now it's different than when we were growing up. But there were kids you would know that would play at Georgetown Prep or Landon. Um, but like my public school, I went to Churchill. Uh, they went to the state championships and we played kids from Annapolis. And, you know, it was basically our football team versus their lacrosse team. Right. And our, our football team was checking and just trying to crush people. And they were throwing the ball behind their back. And we all, I remember, take the caravan up to, I think, Saverna Park. And we're like, all right, we're going to go kick their ass. And it was just, it was, it was a, right. a show. So, so I think that, I think you hit the nail on the head as far as when people think of Maryland, there are pockets, yeah. um, but it's not, you don't grow up with a lacrosse stick in Montgomery County unless you have a connection to it or you're introduced to it. In, in yeah. Way. Well, it's just, you know, so listen, like the, the preps and the Landons have been number one in the country and they were, when I was growing up, uh, highly concentrated, group out in that are taking kind of the best in the state, not Baltimore. So people are traveling. I mean, I traveled 45 minutes each way to DeMatha to play there. So they're, they're dealing with the top players, whereas Baltimore just has so much depth. Sure. Right. So any given game, Landon in prep could be Boys Latin or Loyola or Calvert Hall. Um, and, and in some cases, we're, we're much more talented but then you had every other program in the MIAA, which is in Baltimore. And then the second tier of MIAA that was just – you talk about just depth. Like everyone's playing lacrosse in Baltimore and, and we're all really talented. And those were super talented and we're going to the next level. And in a way, you look at other sports. I mean you look at countries like, the, like, like Holland or the Netherlands um, that consistently is a, is a World Cup contender, but is dealing with a, a, a much smaller population than their competitors of different countries in Europe and even down in South America, um, relatively speaking. So it, it depends on your on your focus, the concentration of the people that are that are participating in a particular discipline, and then you look at the depth. Like again, Spain, if they were to roll out four or five teams, like they roll out ten teams to Holland's ten. Like they would kick their ass except sure. for the top two, right? Yeah. Uh, and in some ways our basketball is the same thing, right? Yep. So like Exactly. Teams That's are, probably a better example. Yeah, like some countries are starting to be able to play with us, France, Spain, you know, uh, here and there. But you roll out 10 teams of American basketball players. Forget about it. <laughs> and and <laughs> frankly, maybe the fourth team, uh, fourth USA team would upset the, the first one. Sure. And that's what we have in the NBA and the NFL. MLS and even MLL. Right? So, so go to lacrosse. So you, you, do you fall in love with it right away? Are you like, what's it like for you when you get that stick and you just start playing, I'm assuming like throwing off the wall or whatever yeah. you start doing with, with lacrosse ball? No, I actually hated it my first season. I wanted to quit. And Were my, you good? No, that's why I hated it. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I started playing, like I said, I started when I was 12 and I was always a, a little bit taller and bigger than, than my, uh, teammates or opponents in some cases not, but, uh, in lacrosse it was, and, and, and slightly more athletic. And, and in this case I had those attributes, but it's such a skill-based sport and very technical that if you can't catch the ball or pass or shoot or pick up the ball off the ground, it doesn't matter how great of an athlete you are, you're going to get beat. And, and that was the case for me. And I think a little bit of my adolescence kicked in. And it, again, very, very complicated technical sport. 
Uh, I think it's part of globally as we look at lacrosse why it um, it is 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 difficult to adopt as frequently. I mean, it's it's the only team sport that has grown year over year for the past fifteen years. So the growth is there, but has it has it yet? It's yet to hit that big exponential swing because of cost of equipment and it's also very technical. So you need great coaches for every kid that picks up a stick for the first time. Hopefully, we can get a coach near that kid to teach them, and then that is a challenge that goes unspoken about in sports. But back to the point was I, I, I did have good coaches, but I, I didn't want to continue to play. I started second guessing and saying, hey, maybe I'll do AAU basketball because I was much further along in those sports. And when you're younger, you're playing a confidence game. Were you, were you good at all those other sports when you started in those other sports? Um, n- no, I, I would, I, I mean, objectively, I, it's a great question because I, I don't remember my, my, where I was or my skill when I first started dribbling a basketball is something that I did at an early age. So you figure it out. But, um, I, uh, at that point I was, and, and I think with the other sports, I picked up the game when everyone else was picking up the game. So you improve. And then in my case and others cases, I was improving a little bit faster, but in, in this case, I came into the sport late and, and that is a challenge and, and hockey is similar. I would say if you come into hockey late, I was sorry. I was just thinking as you were talking about the technicals. I was still back on your comment about technique because I hadn't thought about that as yeah. someone who didn't play lacrosse. Yeah. That yeah, there's technique to it. And then I, I was literally in my head thinking of, I was going through the sports in my head. I was like, yeah, basketball is pretty like you can kind of figure it out from shooting and sure, snap your wrist and there's lessons and and soccer. You know, you're kicking a ball, you sort of figure it out. Um, and baseball, you see ball, hit ball. But I was thinking about hockey as you were talking and you're saying the the ability to shoot and pick up a ball. And hockey, too, requires certain techniques. To shoot a slap yeah. shot, you have to learn how to, to do that to or skate. Or handle the puck yeah, while skate. you're skating. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So so I think generally stickball sport is more challenging. And uh, baseball, see the ball, hit the ball. Uh, you know this probably because sports psychology is so important in, in that field. You know, if you're three out of ten, you're you're starting player making millions of dollars and potentially making in the Hall of Fame. If you're two out of ten, you're probably going to get a roster spot. Like two out of ten. So you're talking about like the psychology of that's how challenging that is. But but you're not like constantly playing the game trying to hit a ball or running with the bat, for example. So. It's it's still different than hockey and lacrosse, and the reason why is like our motor skills, our hand-eye coordination, is is much more sustainable when we're actually using our hands or our foot to make contact with the ball. So baseball, you have a glove on and you're actually following the ball into your hand. Basketball, same thing. Soccer, you're kicking it with your foot. In hockey and lacrosse, the netting or the the compartment of the stick of which you're handling the ball is is extended sometimes two to three feet away from your hand. So it's a little bit more difficult from a hand-eye standpoint to follow that ball. And then as in both sports, you're then handling and there's so many different techniques. It's not about in baseball just striking the ball. It's not about just shooting the ball in lacrosse or in hockey. It's handling the puck. It's cradling. It's absorbing contact. And what I say to many people who, who ask me like, well, you know, what if, um, you know, what if, uh, what if Randy Moss played lacrosse, tremendous athlete, super fast, unbelievable vertical, great hands. Um, those skills don't necessarily convert to hockey or lacrosse. It, it's a very much a motor skill sport where you have to have that, like kind of that fluidity is what we call it. A, a level of athleticism that is, is, I think more innate. Than anything, uh, it can be learned over time, 
But even I'll say I don't have as, – as much as I work on them, I, I don't by any stretch have the best hands in professional lacrosse. Just like you can see these NHLers and how talented they are, you can see by far the forwards who have the best hands. And, and that's something that's just like they have. It's a skill mm-hmm. set of their athleticism. They might, be, might not be the fastest or the strongest, but they have those hands. Is there anything you do to drill hands in lacrosse? Like what do you do knowing – Knowing that that's a weakness of yours. Of course. There's different ways you can structure your practices. You can get a little bit closer to the ball, do more reactionary stuff. I think a lot of it has to do with poise and your ability to uh, to, to remain calm in, in, frankly, those very in-tight situations. So there's game reps that you can do. Uh, but again, there, that when we're talking pro sports and pro athletes, it's that 1% of the 1%. And, and then, you know, even you go to an NBA game and um, there's unbelievable talent on the floor. But if you're there in person and you see James Harden warming up playing, you just know, you can just feel that that guy's better, right? And and you're just like, wow. To, to think that there are these world-class athletes on the court practicing every day, working their tails off, and then there's a, like one or two that are that much better, like head and shoulders better. You can see it without even really, even if you're not even really a basketball fan, you can see it and you can feel it. It, a lot of me to that is like, you know, innate skill, but also next level uh, kind of psychology. But but I would say the skill is, is is really emphasized there because many of these folks, you know, these young phenoms too, they have yet to even work on their sports psychology. Yeah, I'll rubber stamp that for you. I was studying abroad in Madrid and I went to a Real Madrid soccer game. Yeah, I'll tell you about sort of my background in sport. Like I went to probably three Real Madrid basketball games and one Real Madrid soccer game when I was in Spain. Uh, so a little bit of a lean towards basketball at that time. Um, and I go to the game and I'm in the stands and I just go to the guy next to me I, in my broken Spanish. Who is that? Who is that? Cause I could just tell Yeah, Zidane mm. and he's just, he's just dominating. And skill. to your point, it's just like that ability to control uh, everything around him, and I think poise. Uh, Zidane's known over here for headbutting a guy, but but his story, but his real uh, legacy is just controlling the game right. in a sort of artistic way, but a simplistic way. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about? And I'm going to jump around here, but as you play lacrosse, how do you? What's your mindset like when you're performing? When you are, you know, on the edge and the adrenaline's running, or or whatever it is? Can you explain that to people? Because a lot of people don't experience that you know throughout their life what is it like for you when you're between the lines so are you talking about the adrenaline pop of an athlete or are you talking about like the flow state yeah so uh before i even get into flow um i would get into how are you trying to prime your mind to be in a state that maybe gives you the best opportunity to get into flow Mm -hmm. i think it's a combination of of um preparation that that week making sure that you dotted your eyes and crossed your T's. That that always creates a foundational level of of confidence. Is your preparation neurotic? How would you describe it? The no, week I, I, frankly, I, I think it it's it's for me the preparation part is is kind of the easy part. If you have great coaches and teammates, you know you show up on time. You do extra work, but as long as you are attentive and in practice and reading your sky report and watching film. Uh, and then there's getting quality sleep and there's eating well, um, there's taking the extra shots like that. That's preparatory stuff. And I, I think that's pretty easy because it's just right in. It's just effort. Right. 
Um, so that that's the, the the baseline, and and you should always do that. But this is what I think about often when I talk about confidence for an athlete is like preparation. You have to talk about it, but then then it becomes uh, about your your personal um, makeup leading into that game. Um, you know, how confident you are has a lot to do with your self awareness, um, your ability to uh, kind of embrace the uncertainty. Um, a lot of us, I, I went through a state where I should say where, where most of the games I would, I would be so nervous, um, and, and anxious probably not, not the nerves in the way that the general public defines them as like being ill-prepared. It's just like nerves because it's an exciting time. And part of it is a biological response that we're having where our body temperature is going up, our muscle fibers are beginning to fire and twitch. And, and it's like setting a signal to our brain that like, we're ready to go, and it's sometimes it's digested as we're we're not ready, but it actually means that you are ready. Um, so so I think that, but 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 just the 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 imagination or this, maybe the lofty goals that we set for ourselves of of being perfect or um, you know having this incredible game and uh, that that kind of gap from the game hasn't started to wanting the outcome uh, can really put you in a bad place. Um, so there's techniques you can develop. And then, and then the other aspect is, is being a great teammate. And for me, I can feel the benefits of teammates that are collaborative in the locker room leading into a game and are supportive and are kind of like, you know, culturally driven and, and trying to create momentum in, in, in the locker room. And, uh, that is, is highly influential on my performance. So I try to do that understanding that if it's influential for me, it might be for, for my teammates as well. Uh, so there's the individual and team component, there's the preparation. Um, and then there's, and then there's the execution, which again, is something that is unpredictable. You never know how it's going to go. Uh, what you can do though, is, is work on how you're responding to each play that, that takes place, uh, and, and trying to be as present as possible. Uh, I spent a lot of time during my bad performances pissed off about a, a poor shot or a bad play or a missed chance. And then I missed the next chance. And if this domino effect takes place, it's a really difficult skill to condition. And it's one that I don't think ever, uh, ever gets fully polished. I even using this, uh, past Super Bowl as an example, um, you know, Tom Brady's one of the, if not the most clutch performer at his position of all time, uh, and probably is going to be pretty hard on himself for that fumble, even though you can say, well, the, 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 the pocket collapsed and he was trying to get the ball out and it was a great play by the defender. It's true. It's just the competitor and Tom is probably going to think, well, I could have gotten out earlier. Or, you know, if I had better peripheral vision, I may have seen it and tucked and taken the sack, et cetera. Um, point being though, and, and this is what he talked about it, frankly, in last year's Super Bowl win is that stoic mentality of being able to embrace being down 28, three and saying, oh, shit, I just threw a pick and it went in the other direction for six. Um, but I can respond now and do something that no one's done before. And in their case, I, it, it was the, the biggest cut tied, the biggest comeback in NFL history. And it was at the Super Bowl. Um, so ran out of time this past Super Bowl, which is something that happens. And uh, and I think ultimately that's that's kind of my mindset when actually playing is how can you respond well? So you mentioned Brady. So you also mentioned the word perfect. And anyone that's watching Tom versus Time, um, 
you hear him say, no, has to be perfect. Has to be perfect. Yeah. When he's got Edelman with his shirt off and Amendola with his shirt off and they're running routes in the middle of the summer preparing for the new year. How do you think about perfection? Yeah. I, I, if I were him, I would just say it has to be great. Mm. I, I, I mean, it, but, you know, listen, like Tom is the greatest ever. Um, I, I don't know that uh, – I I know I, I you know I don't know that it, anyone's ever said like Tom's perfect or Tom's so he you know and it all depends on the way that we're we're digesting things so he may be using that as a signal knowing that the 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 players that he's working with are bought are bought into that theory of striving for perfection and it's okay to strive for perfection it's again this is why it's very complex um, and also know that there's no such thing as perfection which is what I subscribe to. I've found that because of the way that I am as a competitor, and I would say that I was very much like Tom uh, for a long time, and it actually kind of ate away at me uh, because I I wasn't able to live like a a simple and relaxing life uh, because I was just so competitive and so hard on myself. Uh, And then I I kind of uncovered the theory around embracing imperfection, but it doesn't – the difference between the two doesn't discount or lessen your output as a performer or as someone who practices for perfection. Um, so you think your your mindset and preparation is still the same as it was back then. You're just not reacting to it in the way that you would have in the past. Yeah, because what, what you're actually doing is, you know, and, and Tom and, and listen, the, like, I know Coach Belichick well, and and they're the greatest organization in in football history. I I just believe that, and I try to be objective, even though I'm partial to them. Uh, just you look at their sheer wins and the way that they do it, the talent that they have, and the, the repetition around it. Um, but but if if you're constantly creating a dialogue around perfection. And in practice, in particular, if you're doing it over and over and over and over again until you you get it to a point where you think it's perfect, you're setting yourself up for in a game when it doesn't go according to plan, you, you're you're really going to collapse. Now, again, I say I flagged uh, or prefaced the Patriots because that's not their that what typically happens when it doesn't go well, they come back and win. Uh, but I think you know it's it's safe to assume that you're not Bill Belichick and you're not Tom Brady and you're not the New England Patriots, and be a little bit more mindful of uh, reactionary outcomes to always putting so much emphasis on perfection when knowing that it doesn't exist, but also realizing on the flip side that the best players and the best teams in the world are those that react the best to whatever happens. And I think for any athlete that's listening, you could agree with me that if you come, if you start a game hot, and I'll say this still to this day, as much as I work on the psychology of sports, if I if I go out in the first quarter and score on my first shot, I'm going to probably have a really good game. And oftentimes we're setting goals to do that, and we're working to get there, where we're actually, if that happens, like you're just going to perform well. So when you set goals for yourself, and I hope this makes sense, but when you set goals for yourself to score on every shot or make a hundred percent pass and beat your opponent every time you dodge and you do that, like it just kind of stays status quo rather. And I use golf as an example, often with their up and down rather. And Michael Phelps says this in, in, in swimming, if he's prepared and, and really 
is is uh, objective in looking at possibilities and outcomes, and he prepares for all of them, then he's not going to knee-jerk when something bad does happen or if I make, miss that first shot. I then go into what I think we should be setting our goals and like how do you respond to uh, outcomes unexpected or not preferred. Uh, I just think there's a culture in sports for a long time. If you, if you think you're going to lose, you're going to lose. Or if you think you're going to miss, you're going to miss. And it's like, okay, so so you're just saying let's not explore those possibilities, which I think is really short-sighted. Yeah. Um, like so. I, the way I, I've come to understand this, and I could be wrong, is I think there's also different types of preparation. So what he's working on to try to get perfect right there is the timing with his wide receivers, the technique – I'm going to make sure my technique is as sound as possible. If I change 1% of my technique, that could unlock something for me. And he's sort of chasing that growth or that learning. And in that sense, he's trying to be perfect. But there's another side of preparation, which is sort of what you're talking about is like, all right, let's visualize ourselves when the goggles fall. If I'm Michael Phelps, let's visualize if they put two guys on me and something doesn't go right. Let's see myself struggling and then adapting to that. And I know that's going to be messy and dirty, but I'm going to embrace that. Um, So I think also preparation is a loaded word because for some things, if we're watching film work, we're watching film work to try to see how we can make things quote unquote perfect. Uh, if we're if we're doing technique, let's try to get that to be as clean as possible. But there's a whole other side of preparation that also involves making it similar to a performance, right? And and trying to uh, um, trying to simulate that experience so that when we're in it, we can believe in ourselves. Does that make yeah, sense? At it, all? it makes sense. But but frankly, I, I just think that for the most part, you have to make the assumption that. You know, perfect is a really loaded word and has really pervasive uh, definitions associated with such. And uh, I think it's too risky. One, I, I just don't believe in perfection. So for me, on, on the way that I approach things and the way that I try to work with my teammates on such is, is, is rather kind of just replace that with great or better or best. Mm-hmm. I think best is good. Uh, I think it, you know, globally speaking, perfection is boring. Um, and, and, and like it's truest form, but like, wow, really? I, but the reason is, is like, it's, it's, that doesn't, doesn't exist. So you can't go the become Patriots, a perfectionist. If the Patriots, <laughs> the, you know, Coach Belichick is five for eight. If he was eight for eight, like it, people would really start starting to get bored. And so, and, and so even in their wins, right, their, their last two Super Bowls, they shouldn't have won really. Right, they had an, an amazing interception on the one yard line against the Seahawks, and they came back from twenty eight to three against the Falcons. So, like that, those were very imperfect games. Now, I think in the in the route and understanding the, the degrees of preparation, that is absolutely right and something worth thinking through more for me personally. But I would say strive for strive for best, best in class, or be better, be great. I, I just think perfect can have certain connotations that can be pervasive to the rest of the process and can end up being negative. I use the word visualization and I know you have, you've 
done visualization. You mentioned Phelps, who um, I think he's done a really good job at talking about his experience in visualization, which you sort of hit on, which is he would re- really visualize anything happening over the course mm-hmm. of a swim meet and being able to adjust. How have you used that tool in your toolbox yeah. um, and what's been useful or not useful and just share your experience with visualization? Yeah. So I uh, I don't do as much sport visualization anymore. I used to because I, I my first book in sports psychology was called Mind Gym. And one of the references was around Pele and how he used to lay on his back and put a towel above his eyes and and he would visualize the match and visualize himself scoring and hopefully that would come to fruition. At the time, it probably felt a little bit like more like woo-woo to me uh, to to say like, oh man, like I can predict and try to play this game out that I have against Ohio tonight and like I'm going to score these goals on the run and they're going to come to fruition actually during play. Uh, I, I think it's an exercise that works for some athletes, but for me, I found that visualization for me was basically an exercise in the state of what I was doing that wasn't working, which is kind of living in the future. And uh, and try, don't get me wrong, like the the the, the way that Michael Phelps prepares. Uh, whether he do it through visualization as a form of meditation or he does it just through run of practice, I would do that. I'll do more of that stuff in a run of practice. So another example is like, I, you know, these goggles fall off. So maybe simulate that in practice and see how he reacts. Or, or he also says like you get a wave or a, like a current from a, from a nearby lane that pushes against his stroke or, you know, screws up his turn. Um, so I, I would try to practice those or think about those and then move on. What would my response be? Maybe write it down. But when I spend time meditating, I actually try to work on the skill set of being absolutely present in that state. So when I'm meditating, I'm acknowledging where I'm sitting. In some cases, if I'm standing um, or driving and, uh, and, and just to clarify, like meditation driving is certainly eyes open and it's usually guided and, and, uh, and such, but, um, yeah. Th- so you're doing my meditation though, around pres- being present throughout yeah. the day. You would call it mindfulness is, is mm-hmm. like you're, you're doing meditation, mindfulness throughout the day, uh, whether it's, you could be driving, maybe you're standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yours, it, it differs or is it every morning I'm going to sit and do meditation for X amount of minutes. So I have my, my core meditation, which typically exists in the morning and then right before bed. Um, and, and in some cases, one or the other. Uh, and then if I, if I meditate during a commute, for example, or before a practice, it, it's probably, it's probably on a needed basis. So stress levels are high, trying to make a, de- a clear decision, needing a clear head to do so. Then you can just like turn off for three minutes and figure it out. And I know journaling is a big deal for you as well. Talk about your experience journaling. I think it's just a, a creative, but very thoughtful way of exiting some negative thoughts acknowledging um, areas of gratitude in your life um, and then kind of keeping archival content as you grow to be able to look back. Um, It's a, it's a state of meditation as well to kind of release a little bit. Uh, But I also, you know, I have, I have several journals. I have one for the aforementioned personal thoughts and processes and thankfulness. And then I have like a to-do list. And then I have a a journal that I take into business meetings where it's more sloppy and just notes jotted down. Um, So, you know, I I make sure that that they're parsed out because uh, I I guess I like it that way. When did you start doing that? Journaling. Yep. I've, uh, I've, 
I've noted for probably 10 to 12 years, but primarily work-related. So I grew up with auditory processing disorder and uh, an ADHD. I still have both. Um, so qualified for after-school tutoring and extra time on tests and in some cases note-takers in college because uh, I was a political science major, which was heavy lecture and heavy amounts of reading. Um, but but I always learned that the, the process for me to acquire information from short-term to long-term memory was kind of threefold. Whether I'm reading information for the first time or hearing it, that's step one. Step two for me was always writing it down. There's this process of pen to paper where I was like almost transcribing what was going on in my mind, like imprinting it. And then thirdly, I learned this later through my position in lacrosse and what I was doing as an instructor, but teaching it back. So the three steps for learning for me is is hearing or reading it, then writing that down, and then teaching it to someone else. And I think the third is where most people miss. And this is just effective for me. And I think our school system can actually integrate it. They do the first two really well because you have exams. So you have to write down answers. Uh, but being able to go up in front of class and teach someone what you learn, it's a process that that helps you not only kind of fully comprehend what you're taking in for the first, second, or in some cases, third time, but that 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 ability to then articulate it. You can develop your oral presentation capabilities, but it's just like this transmission of information really takes it for me to, to long-term memory. How do you do that? Like if you're writing all this stuff, you're journaling, when do you teach it? So a lot of times I've learned to teach it when I talk, whether it's to my business partners or my employees. And it's not like, hey, listen to me or I'm going to give everyone a lesson. <laughs> but I've learned – I actually heard uh, – this was recent. I heard Terry Crews on uh, uh, Tim Ferriss, and he was phenomenal. And uh, he was like, I think I talk so much because I've learned that it's my way of processing and kind of coalescing thoughts. And then when you're talking to someone, you kind of get physical cues in return – whether or not it's making sense. And I, I think I, I did it earlier on this podcast and even flagged it where I was like, I hope this makes sense the way that I'm <laughs> explaining it. So a lot of this stuff is, is like first time auditory um, uh, feedback in a way. And, and that's a big part of my learning and sharing experience. And I know you're a big reader. So I'm just curious with those learning, let's call them challenges or differences, whatever you want to call them. How do you read? Because I know you're yeah. just listening to you on your podcast. You're a voracious reader. Yeah. Um, and what does that process look like for you from a reading standpoint? Well, my my reading, I would say, just being honest, has uh, tapered off recently because of the deep work and a few projects that we're on. So you, you have to allocate time. And uh, I, I catch myself regularly considering overall bandwidth availability for a new project or a media opportunity or whatever. It's like, how much bandwidth do I have? Can I handle it this week? Can I handle it that day? And it's really important to be uh, protective over your um, time in meetings and, and work, actual work, but also be protective of, of your time to think and strategize and be creative. And, uh, I, you know, just being honest, I would, I would, I'm trying to be more intentional about carving out time to pick back up my reading uh, but I uh, I use how, Audible. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you go about doing that? Like well, yeah. this podcast is called Intentional Performers. So I'm just going to try to find out. Sure. You know, I think a lot of people in a busy world reading 
can fall by the wayside in the mm. world we live in today. Um, so yeah, how, how are you going about doing so that? So a lot of it is just being responsible to yourself. So one thing that I just started doing this past week is in my morning journaling, challenging myself to read at night or telling myself to read at night, even if it's just carving out 10 to 15 minutes to read. Uh, I saw something, I think it was in Hal Elrod's uh, Morning Miracle book. He talks about if you read just 10 minutes a day, you get through some 60 some odd books a year. 10 minutes a day. Um, and that's for any pace. I think it was like the average pace reader too. So it wasn't like, hey, these, you have these speed readers, these readers who hack through books, which I'm not one to do. Um, anyway, I, uh, I I try to carve out uh, right now 10 minutes before bed to read, uh, 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, and that's been advantageous. Um, but as far as reading, you know, I would consider myself probably a slower reader. I do like to have a pen while I read and I'll... Um, Definitely tab pages and underline things that I like. And in some cases, if it's a really good book, I'll have a journal next to me and be taking notes while I read. So it's 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 moving forward at a snail's pace. And then if it's like an application or a functional read, like a business book or something, then I'll, I'll cruise through it a little bit faster. Um, and then one one tip that I picked up is is like don't be afraid to jump around or only read half a book or a quarter of a book. And so I've done that in many cases and uh, and have been advised to in others and. And I, I think that's good too. And goes back to that embracing imperfection. And like, there's this need, if we open up a book, you have to read it cover to cover or that doesn't count. Like yeah. says who, right? Like, why are you reading then? Are you reading to keep a tally? Right. Well, Which and, isn't right. Well, and if there's a book that you can get the gist of it, like there are great books that are great books. Mm. There are great book ideas that you can get from reading an article. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's also an interesting thing. And like, I'm looking and I'm thinking back at my bookshelf that's behind me right now. And like, I have the books that I've read and the books that are on deck and there's a lot of books on deck. deck Um, (laughs) So I I get it. Um, Who influenced you? Because there's this curiosity that you have um, about, about psychology, about technology, which we haven't even really hit on, Um, you know, where does that come from? Who who are the big influencers in your life? Who it's one thing to suggest to someone that you're going to journal. It's a whole nother thing to actually, you know, make that a practice. Like who are the people in your life that have helped shape, you know, your processes, your systems, all yep. that sort of stuff. Yep. So I think my intellectual curiosity is just, it, it's new form from, practice and wanting to improve my skill as a young athlete. I was very focused on my athletic performance, my high performance as a young athlete from when I first picked up the lacrosse stick when I was 12 years old to probably about 25 or 26. Um, I so was solely, solely focused on that. Like really, I mean, you're really, at Johns Hopkins, you're like at Tamatha, but yeah, like, I mean, I, I, uh, I would say for the most part, this is why I'm an entrepreneur is I figured out, uh, how to hack through school pretty well. Uh, I'm not proud of saying that, but I, I think you can certainly figure out how to, you know, graduated from Johns Hopkins with a 353 QM, having learning differences and probably missed a lot of homework assignments because you're given a course syllabus, you know where the grades are being weighted, and I prepare my ass off for the papers and the exams and I would score well. Um, I, I, you know, I, I tell this fairly regularly and publicly, and I did it during my DeMatha Hall of Fame speech is like, I would, if I were to have the opportunity to go back to school, and I still could, I don't, again, have the bandwidth to right now, but if I were to go back to Hopkins and DeMatha, I think I would have been a much better student because what I know or what I want to know, what I know I don't know, 
um, I uh, I would have spent more time and just been much more. I think I would have retained the information more. I, but that was just what I was. I, I don't regret it. It was just part of my development as a young kid, and um, and, and I committed most of my horsepower and most of my time to my craft on field. And I was able to use some ingenuity to have great grades and progress. And I built relationships in both schools and got on to where I was. And I adopted technology pretty early on, technology, mainly social media through these platforms. Why? Um, Who introduced you to that? So I, I, I pretty much adopted it myself. Facebook just began to proliferate beyond college campuses my junior year. Um, I was, you know, right at the time where YouTube was beginning to go beyond cat videos and unboxing my junior year. And there was a young kid who did a Paul Rabel highlight video on YouTube that took off. And I was one of only probably two or three athletes in lacrosse that had a highlight video. So that's how I became a household name. Um, and so I was attentive to that and seeing what was going on. And then when I graduated and was playing professionally, I realized pretty quickly that linear media wasn't covering our sport. So social media, this new thing was a way to interact with our audience and our fan base. So I adopted it pretty quickly and said like, okay, I'm going to actually commit to this. One, I found out that technology interests me. Uh, but two, I just really understood that I like connecting with others. And this was just a way to do so using technology. And then I started committing myself to learning how that was going to evolve, how it was going to trend, because I realized real value monetarily, but also uh, from the core objective of building an audience was very much uh, dependent on your ability to adopt new platforms and new techniques and new creative and understand consumption trends, consumption appetite. So that was technology. Uh, and then in the intellectual curiosity side, that, you know, learning business, building relationships with others, having access to owners, owners who are successful in business and the likes. And my brother, who we spent a little bit of time earlier talking about, has been a highly successful entrepreneur and now a business partner of mine. All that gleaning that I had got to do by virtue of where my place was in lacrosse, uh, which is, which is, you know, been unbelievable. The ability to, if you're an athlete, you can get access to some pretty influential and smart people. But Paul, it would have been much easier if you had just said, I'm just going to try to become the best lacrosse player ever. And I'm going to put my head down. And I'm sure there are other people that were telling you that like, Hey man, stop doing these videos. Like just put your head down, become the best lacrosse player ever. What, what have you like, like how, how were you able to, to sort of shift? I don't even want to say shift. How were you able to open yourself up to other things while still, being freaking yeah. amazing lacrosse player and, and go down that route. Because yeah. a lot of people don't do that. Very f Look, very few people that are top in their sport yeah. uh, have, I'm going to use the word bandwidth, but uh, yeah, the bandwidth to also take on these other projects. Yeah. So uh, yeah, bandwidth's an interesting thing. And the way I look at it is uh, less about time and more about energy. And for me, I uh, was following the energy and I was following the path um, associated with things that I would derive fulfillment from. And uh, I get a lot of fulfillment exercising my creative skill sets. And that has a lot to do with uh, what we're putting out, what we're creating from a content standpoint. I, I drive a lot of juice from connecting with an audience, with another person, especially a young kid who's looking to be the next great lacrosse player, but also try to navigate the complications, dynamics, and complexities of, of sports and building confidence and the like. So I like to talk about uh, emotional intelligence as well. 
Um, so these are areas for me that that cross over into just like core interest. And, uh, and, and then, and then you start learning new things and, and, you know, I, I often think about Reed Hoffman, who is, uh, a a phenomenal entrepreneur and one of the the world's top investors and has been so for the past three decades, uh, technologists, and he has so many projects going on at once. And he says, you know, obviously he likes to participate in a number of different things, but one of the reasons why he takes on all these projects is he just gets more opportunity to learn. And, and spend time with more people. And it's like satisfying this unquenchable thirst or maybe not satisfying it, but hitting on the opportunity for him to continue to learn from other people, acquire new skills. And, and that is really meaningful in his pursuit of life and the same for me. So Paul, we started with a very simple question, which was sports psychology. What was your experience like? Um, I think you gave us a window into what it was like for you, but just talk about that experience. Um, what it was like, what got you to that point? You sort of mentioned 2014 and, you know, having a big loss. Mm-hmm. Um, but did someone guide you in that direction or did you go by yourself and just walk us through that process? Yeah. So, so the process is ongoing and I, uh, I have a sports psychologist named John Elliott. I have a personal therapist. Her name's Lindsay Hoskins. So I think it, similar to my journals, it's parsed out a little bit on, on uh, strategy and performance. And even though lessons learned uh, kind of cross over into all walks of life. Uh, but I would say my brother flagged it pretty early on because he would see how distressed I would be after games. Um, but I was pretty resistant to it. I think for similar stigmas that are associated with getting counseling or help, uh, oftentimes uh, directed towards some type of mental health or personal trauma, which are, are really important, I think, for all of us to understand. Mental health runs in our family. I've I've educated myself on on the importance of of um, of, of not only understanding those uh, who are challenged, but um, realizing that it's it's part of part of life and 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 where I've kind of landed is is improving yourself, uh, the discipline, your way that you communicate with others, the way you respect others, the way that you understand others' experiences. Um, but it wasn't just about a loss in 2014. I've, I broke my foot the week after. So it started compounding. Uh, and then when you go through a surgery, you sit by yourself. So I asked my agent at the time because I was really looking for a sports doctor and, and she uh, – referred me to John Elliott, who was originally going to then refer me because his book was full and we kind of hit it off. And that's how we began that relationship. Um, and originally it was, it was prioritized around kind of task specific stuff like, Hey, I miss a shot and I hang my head or I get hyper competitive and it turns into a fight and all this kind of thing. All these stuff that I look back at now are pretty easily solved. You know, and we looked at um, kind of softening my competitive edge and ways to do that in regular day life and repetitions to take. Uh, we looked at ways to adjust the framing around missed shot, shots and opportunities to get it back and things that you hear. But when you really get granular, as you mentioned, that's where you find application and improve. Uh, and then it really just became about leadership and beginning, becoming a good leader and connecting with players in the locker room and that whole culture thing that we all talk about. So we spend a lot there. Is that that's an ongoing journey, and processes that change over time and evolve. Um, so I, I would say, you know, there's never a, a quick fix to anything. 
and you also shouldn't be looking to get in there to fix. It's just part of the process for me. And I look at it as ongoing and a part of my life that I'll continue to, to invest in. It's such a refreshing answer. Um, it just makes me feel really good about the direction of our field. And I don't think you understand how important it is for people in our field to have microphones and to have you sort of being open and honest. I'm going to use the word vulnerable, but but just truthful in your experience. Because yep. to me, I'm in the business of you don't have to be sick to get better. We're not waiting till it rains to build a roof. We're building the roof and yeah. it's going to rain. So it's good to have roof builders along your side that can just help guide you. And doesn't mean that uh, people in my profession have all the answers. We definitely don't. doesn't mean that we don't have our challenges and, and our um, issues. We do. Um, but just to have someone who yeah. understands the value of it is uh, is refreshing to hear. And, and yeah. I appreciate that. So thank you for, for doing that. Uh, of course. Uh, the last thing I'll add to that for all the athletes that are listening or even coaches that uh, have yet to refer is you know, I think we can all agree for the most part, and I said this earlier in the podcast, on the three areas that an, an athlete can excel and it's skill-based, it's your physiological work, and then it's your psychology. And for the first two, you have a coach that helps you acquire skill. You have a strength conditioning team. You have physical therapists that help you evolve your training regimen and improve your strength and your speed. And with psychology, for a long time, we just think, oh, it's going to come. It's experience-based. We'll figure it out. And I know coaches do a great job of mentoring and helping, but I've looked at it now as like, wow, why is that such an important area of an athlete's growth or ability to improve yet often taken on by themselves or kept within their internal network of parental advisory or coach about why not get someone who excels and specializes in that world and and that for me under that framework makes a lot of sense yeah and it also makes sense that coaches, they're psychologists. Like there's no doubt they have to be psychologists. They have to study what motivates somebody. I asked somebody um, who was on Gino Ariema, what makes Gino special? He said, mm. The person said, Gino will figure out what motivates you early. Like he's gifted at finding that out. And then he will make sure that he is hitting on that every single day. Um, so, you know, every great coach is a psychologist. Um they also know a lot about technique. They also should know a lot about phys physiology. Yep. Um, this is like my obsession. Like this is all I study every day. The books behind me are, it's, it's it. Why mm -hmm. I want to talk to you is to find out how you tick. And it's a culmination of stuff. It's not just what some book says. It's not just Tom Brady. It's not just Johnny who's 16 years old playing soccer. Uh, it's a combination of that stuff. And um, so like, to me, I think there's knowledge all around us. And for you to go out and explore that and continue to explore that, I think that's where psychology is heading. Um, it's already starting to be there, which is, you know, you, you don't have to have an issue. And you, you hit on this. If you have an issue, of course, there's help and we want you to go get help. And there's a process to do that. But there's also a process for healthy people to continue to improve. And you mentioned leadership. Right. Hopefully, most of us look at ourselves as some sort of leaders, whether we're leaders in our household, or we're leaders of a company, or we're leaders of our team. Um, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Yeah. And it's challenging and complex. The last question I had for you that I just was really curious about, and this will get us to sort of wrap things up. In 10 years, where do you see yourself? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and, and I think always worth the thought exercise, knowing though, going into that, uh, that it can change, right? It's important to set goals. It's important to uh, kind of acknowledge where you're at and where you want to be, but also know that things can change and change really quickly. Um, so I, I do a lot of intention setting. I've tried to shift it to a quarterly thing, but I always have a big probably three or four days where I go deep at the either the end of the year or right on the start of the new year, reflecting on my journaling from the years past uh, to the goals that I set that past year, whether I accomplished them, why I didn't, what changed, and then set my next year's goals. I don't often sit down and set goals for 10 years or even five years, knowing that things change really fast, especially in today's age in the world that I'm in, which is technology and media. Um, but I do know for me, um, that, you know, I'm really, I feel really fortunate to be in a position where I, um, build our businesses and our projects or our properties off of a platform that, that, uh, has to do with sports and that's, that's created around a mission that's core to who I am as a person. So with that, I would say in, in the next 10 years or 10 years from now, I'd still like to be heavily involved in media in whatever form that that looks like, whether it's current mediums that I'm in now and excelling in those, or it's through some new forum of, of communication with the next young athlete, the next entrepreneur, um, and, and then even communicating with my peers. So there's a media standpoint. And then, and then there's like the operator, uh, you know, my brother and I have been business partners for 10 years and we've been true operators to the extent of, of, uh, you know, firstborn entrepreneurs, investors second. We think the best investors in the world are those that have operated at some, at some portion of their life. So they know how to kind of key into their portfolio companies and advise those founders. Um, so I, I think that influence for me as an operator will continue to be in lacrosse and potentially transcend into other sports. But, you know, there's a reason why through the first 32 years of my life, sports have been so impactful in my life. And I think they'll, they'll remain to be so for, for a long time in the future. So whether that's operating as an owner, professional lacrosse, international lacrosse, or if it's just aiding as an advisor and doing other things that help me develop financial freedom, I think that'll uh, probably be where I am in 10. So the dream would be some sort of ownership. That's, would you, would you sort of summarize if we were to say a dream or is that too narrow? I, I think I'm, I'm living my quote unquote dream now. Um, and it's all, it's still evolving, right? Um, I didn't know that I would be playing at the highest level at 32. Um, so there's a world where I'm playing at 42. Is that my intention right now? No. But I think to continue to, to follow the path that, uh, that I'm on and, you know, again, that, that Reed Hoffman mentality of taking on projects and relationships that give me energy and, uh, fulfillment in what I do and being open to, to iterations, uh, alterations and, and, uh, continuing to just be really curious, uh, along the way. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you because I walked up to you in the Starbucks a couple of blocks away from here. In all honesty, because I have a list of podcast guests that I would love to interview and, and you're on that list. And um, 
you know, and, and I was sitting there with a woman named Danielle Cantor, who's an NBA agent, and I'm talking to Danielle, and Danielle's like, I'm like, oh, that's Paul Rabel. Uh, like, I, he's someone who I've wanted to have on my podcast. And Danielle's like, Brian, you got to go talk to him. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. And she's like, no, Brian, like, come on, man. Like, you got to go talk to him. And Brian, you talk about taking risks and, and going yeah. for it and all this stuff. And like, no, you got to go talk to him. I'm like, no, I really don't want to. She's like, Brian. And she gave me that look that like my mom gives me. Like, come yeah. on, like, come on. You, you know, you can do it. So I walked up to you and, you know, I think I struggled with that because I'm a giver and I like to give to people. And I think in that moment I was thinking about taking. Yep. And um, I was... That was one of the more anxious moments I think I've had. Uh, and I do public speaking and I do all kinds of things and I interview people. And um, that was a, that was an anxious moment for me. Um, but I just appreciate you giving me the time uh, and then following up and saying, yeah, I'd love to come on the podcast um, and really enjoyed chatting with you today. I want to give you the platform. I know you obviously have a podcast, which I listen to and I love. And I would love to just give a plug for Paul's podcast. Um, I think Paul's podcast has a diverse group of people uh, that play in different sandboxes. And um, Paul is able to leverage his experience being at the top of his profession and share his experience. But also, I mean, your preparation is is sick. Um, and I think it comes across in your podcast. It's clear that you want to know as much as possible about your guests before you talk with them. I think it speaks to sort of your mindset. Uh, and then I think you just do a great job of probing them and allowing them to uh, share information with you. And I mean, He's had Bill Belichick, Drew Brees, Venus Williams, um, a number of different guests. Mm. I'm, I'm not even – there's tons of them. Uh, but you also bring tremendous um, knowledge to that show. And I think for me, a lot of our listeners are athletes playing at different levels. And I know they're going to enjoy listening to you if they don't already. So uh, quick plug for the podcast. Let us know where we can find that. Obviously, yeah. I know you're, you're obviously very – uh, active on social media. So plug all that stuff. And of course, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Sure. So I, I really appreciate that. It's a, it's a passion project for me. I spend most of my time on social media, uh, conversing with the, the younger generation of athlete and, and maybe budding entrepreneur. And that that's all uh, on my YouTube page or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. All of that is forward slash Paul Rabel. It's R-A-B-I-L. Uh, the podcast is called Suiting Up Podcast with Paul Rabel. So it's uh, suitinguppodcast.com, or you can search my name on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher. Um, we're, we're on most of the podca- podcast outlets. So I would appreciate that, and, and certainly we really value uh, subscribers on that forum. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's passion work, but it's also a lot of that, that, uh, a lot of that kind of um, resourceful, uh, committed, behind the scenes, uh, low return grind media work. So those subscriptions that we get uh, that 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 are free are actually very very valued and appreciated by any podcaster. And I know I can speak for the community. And the same thing goes in the YouTube world. And again, it's something that that I'm really passionate about and have a lot of fun doing. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is uh, I appreciate that backstory on on our encounter at Starbucks. And I it's it's always good to remind yourself that uh, there are great opportunities out there, most of which come through some form of spontaneity 
or um, you know you're unexpecting on 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 who you're going to meet and to always be open um, and to to look at those connections opportunistically as as a as a chance even meditatively to reset or to start over especially if you're in a funk I think that's when people uh, tend to be challenged in new opportunities projects or meeting people is with their 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 time is shrunk they're busy they're they're in a bad mood and and you can tend to brush an opportunity off and, and not know what it could be worth so that's one and then two is um you know it, you're you're a giver that, that's great to hear I, I feel the same way about myself and i've learned over time that it's really important to take mm-hmm. and a lot of times you find that counterbalance through other relationships or or ass, or kind of assets or characteristics of other people that you bring into your life um, that can give to you so you can take. But I think finding that balance and it requires vulnerability on your end to, to do that and walk up to someone. And so I'm, uh, I, I'm glad for once to have, have maybe been that person because uh, I'm, I'm often like you in your shoes. So. Well, I want to thank you. And we could do a whole podcast on that conversation, <laughs> but we'll spare your time and then the listener's time. Uh, also, you're, I think, far superior than me on social media, but my producer always says, Hey, at the end, throw out your Twitter handle, Brian. So I'll put out my Twitter handle. It's at Brian Levinson. And then I have a website, intentionalperformers.com. Paul, thank you for the time and looking forward to many more conversations in the future. Thanks. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. So I have my, my core meditation, which typically exists in the morning and then right before bed, um, and, and in some cases one or the other. Uh, and then if I, if I meditate during a commute, for example, or before a practice, it, it's, prob- it's probably on a needed basis. So stress levels are high, trying to make a, de- a clear decision, needing a clear head to do so, then you can just like turn off for three minutes and figure it out.